Romans chapter 8, verse, I think we're in verse 33, I think is where we pick up this morning. So if you would turn there with me, I'd appreciate that. Romans chapter 8, and I want to read uh, verse 31 through verse 34 with you. So if you would follow along. Topic of our discussion, talking back to fear. We covered half of it last week. We'll finish uh, the next two verses, Lord willing, today. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? This glorious proclamation that those that God has foreknown, he also uh, predestined and called and justified and glorified, he from the eternity past and from the day of your salvation forward has already provided for your success through the sacrificial death of his son Jesus. That is the message of confidence, that is the promise of hope that Paul lays before the church in 28 through 30 of Romans 8. It is a promise that he wants them to embrace and love and delve into and comprehend in all of its ramifications. And after he has written about that in three brief verses, Paul's response is, what then shall we say in response to this? What could you possibly add to a promise that talks about your future destination with God as already complete? What could you possibly add to that? What shall we say to this in response to this? First response, if God is for us in that kind of a way, then who can be against us? God is, Paul's first thought, our protector. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, delivered him up for us. And I've been circling these words in my text. For us, if God is for us, if he gave up his son for us, won't he, arguing from the greater gift of Christ to the lesser thing of our daily needs, won't he, with him, freely and graciously give us everything? Won't he be the source of joy and satisfaction and the true delight and pleasure in your life? If he gave his son, can't he be everything else that you could possibly need? And can't that deep satisfaction work as an antidote to kill sin in our lives? Our going after lesser pleasures and patterns? If he's going to freely give us all things, shouldn't we seek to wrap our arms around the fact that he not only protects, but also provides for us? An argument that is borne out in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, argument now from lesser to greater. If you then, though you are evil, dad, fallen man. If you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven give good deeds to those who ask him? Won't he not only protect, but also provide for the needs of his children? That's the thrust of this verse. God who supplies all of our needs according to his gift in Christ. Won't he freely with him give us everything that we need? Therefore, we never pursue or never need pursue lesser things to find satisfaction in joy. Because our greatest joy and delight is found in a personal relationship with Christ. Argument from greater 
to lesser. If he did this, we'll certainly take care of this. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against those that God has chosen? What's Paul doing? Paul's just, he's just sitting back in his chair. He wrote the main thing. He's just sitting back and saying, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? And his next what about this is reflecting. Who can bring a charge against those that God has, here's the key, chosen? Because the chosen are the topic of discussion in Romans 8, 28 through 30. They're the ones that he foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. That is the chosen ones. The ones that he has built plans for that encompass all of time, from eternity past to eternity future, in the mind of God and in the midst of the Godhead. This is the topic of discussion. Who can bring a charge against those that God has chosen? Idea is that he has selected. It is, Paul says, God who justifies. So the third thought is this. And I put these in the personal in my notes this time. God protects me. God provides for me. These are his promises. God has justified me. Now we know that the basic meaning of the word justified is to receive by judicial judgment from God, a declaration from God, a status of righteousness, perfection that comes to us through the shed blood of our Savior. Everyone that he has chosen, the list of five words apply to them. And for every one of them, Paul says, who will bring any charge against those that God has chosen? My answer to that question is this. Who will accuse? Who will bring a charge? My honest answer is, it happens all the time. Happens all the time. If you have a conscience that is alive and not completely dulled and deadened by sin, you have experienced thoughts of self-condemnation. You have probably said or had someone say to you, I just can't forgive What's the next word? Myself. I just can't forgive myself. Our conscience, thoughts of self-condemnation, teenagers. God's tool toward sanctification for every parent that has them. <laughs> My daughters are brutally honest, and it's a good thing. They bring correction into my my wife is also very good with this too they're not like condemning like this text is saying but they're tools that God uses we also have someone in our life as Christians called Diablos the name for Satan that's used in the book of Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 the text says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of His Christ, His anointed one. It has come and the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Now let this settle in. In your heart, Satan will seek 
to raise doubts about the completeness or the efficacy of God's work through his son, Jesus Christ. This text anticipates that, and it is another text that talks about the future demise of Satan as if it is what? Already done. He is spoken about as already cast down. In the words of our Savior, he spoke about the evil one thinking about his death. Here's what he said. He looked at the disciples and he said, I saw Satan cast down from heaven, from his place as the accuser of the brothers. He is a defeated enemy. He is effective. He haunts us. He rattles the saber of judgment and fires darts of fear and guilt at our hearts. He seeks to load us down with a burden of condemnation. Paul's response to that is, who can bring a charge against God's elect? God has justified. And that justification is for the chosen who in the mind of God are already experiencing the fullness of glorification in the mind of God. Who can really bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is no one. But Satan does. In the present tense, Revelation 12.10 says, he is continually harassing, trying to get you to doubt the goodness of God that is expressed and displayed most clearly through the cross of Christ. Who then, Paul is really saying, I think, can present an indictment against believers that can stick so as to condemn and cut them off from a relationship with God? That's the real question here. Not can our conscience, not can others around us, not can Satan accuse us, but who can bring a charge that will stick and lead to the condemnation of those that God has chosen? You know what Paul's response is? He says, it is God who justifies. It is God who declares righteous based on the work of his son, Jesus. In John chapter 8, there's perhaps one of the most powerful stories of a person under a guilt and burden and load of condemnation. We know her as the woman caught in adultery. That's her to us. If you're going to describe this woman from the Bible, that's her name. Who is she? She's the woman caught in adultery in the very act. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman, John 8 says, a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And the clear implication of that stand here is what? It's condemnation. It is judgment. You stand here and we are over here. And they are bringing against her a stinging and clear indictment of guilt. They say to Jesus, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Meaning, for this crime against the law of God, the judgment is death. That's what she, according to the law of Moses, they are saying, deserves. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone her. What do you say? Jesus, what do you say about this woman that we caught in the very act? Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, so what they did is they bring her, they set her to the side. What do you say about this woman? We know what Moses said. What do you say? Trying to trap him. He kneels down and begins to write in the dirt. They keep harassing and hounding him. What do you say? 
What do you say? Do you agree with Moses, Jesus? He writes in the dirt. Again, he stands up as they keep questioning him. And he said to them, if any one of you is without an indictment that could damn you to hell, my paraphrase, if you're without sin, if you're without guilt, as you rightly are charging this woman up, then you throw the first stone at her. If you can proclaim your innocence as you bring this charge against this woman, then you can throw the first stone. And then I love this. Because that's curtains. He bends down and he starts writing in the ground again. At this time, those who heard him, and he's not done speaking yet. He began, those who heard him began to go away. Apparently not just the religious leaders, but everyone there is like, oh my word. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, this, for me, this is the picture forward to heaven. Woman, where are those who condemned you? She looks around. They're gone. They're gone. And Jesus, in his pure, unadulterated grace, as she says, no one, sir, he says, then, neither do I condemn you. And he declared, go and leave your life of sin. You have been delivered from the judgment that you deserved. Pure grace. Because you know what she deserved? She deserved the stoning. And so did the man, mysteriously absent in the account. Because the Gospels are continually showing us that Jesus loves those that the culture doesn't accept and won't love and can't love. Because that's the nature of grace that comes to those whom God has gloriously and freely chosen. She is caught in the very act. Her sin was obvious. She does not plead her innocence. Jesus does not plead her innocence. Her guilt is clear, as is yours when you look in the mirror of life. You don't need to feel bad about that. If he can reach out to this woman, the idea is, if he can reach to, the, to what is in the culture, apparently the lowest of the low, even one who is by gender set to a lower level, if he can reach to those, then he can reach you. That's what this account is about. Who can bring a charge against those that God is working to bring to himself in saving faith? No one. No one can bring an indictment that will condemn. Jesus stands up and says, woman, I do not condemn you either, though I rightly and fully could. He does not force all of them. I'm sorry. He does force all to see themselves in her. You understand what he's doing? If you're without guilt, cast the first one. What is he saying? It's kind of a subtle way of saying, you guys are a bunch of rebels. How dare you condemn this woman? But Jesus is much more savvy than us, isn't he? He, he just cuts to the quick and gets to the point. If you're without sin, cast the first stone. Judge of others. 
judge of others. The truth is that many of us as Christians live with regrets from the past, from bad decisions that we have made. We love to take on what one has called the baggage of condemnation. And Satan loves it when we do this. He loves to read the list that we carry on the outside of the backpack of condemnation on our lives. Here's something I want to say to you that I think is very important. The accusations of the evil one are absolutely true. We are rebels. We do have things that come against us that could condemn us apart from God's saving grace. I don't need to argue whether or not Satan's accusations against me are valid or not. The question is, have they been removed? Has the consequence, the penalty of those allegations, of those indictments, accurate as they are, has the penalty been paid in full? That's the question that hangs in light of this text. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, have you realized that, the most, that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Thoughts of condemnation, weakness, and fear haunt the life of many believers. We must remember that I cannot and I need not resolve the issues of yesterday by promising to do better tomorrow. That will leave you a condemned man, woman, or young person. If you think that you will offload condemnation by doing better tomorrow, have you ever had that feeling? I won't do this again. This is haunting me. It's not going to happen again. And it happens again. And the load of condemnation increases with its severity. The way to fight sin is not to say, I'm going to do better tomorrow. The way to fight sin is to realize that it is forgiven forever and always by the shed blood of the one who died in my place, not to declare my innocence, but to bear it in his body on a tree. That's the glorious message and center, the burning center of the gospel. God is not honored or impressed by constant self-condemnation, self-criticism, wallowing in shame and guilt. God is not impressed. He doesn't watch you go through that process and say, I am so glad that you're working through a process of repentance. He is not honored by activity that seeks to do what the cross of Christ has already accomplished for us. He is honored when we believe with all our hearts that those who trust in him will never be put to shame. That's when God is honored. When the church embraces the cross of Christ afresh on a regular basis and says, my status, my standing before God, forgiven, free from my sin, is owing completely to the cross of Christ. And I, through wallowing in self-condemnation and guilt, am adding no benefit to the cause. All I am doing is killing the joy that God intended for his children all I'm doing. I used to say to my daughters when they would go through those irrational fears, I'd say, you know what? I'm not going to let you do this. Particularly to my one daughter went through a battle with this irrational fright at night. Tearing herself apart. Go sit on her bed and say, I'm not going to sit aside. And watch you haunt yourself with condemnation. I'm not going to let someone do that to my daughter. 
And folks, here's the truth. That's what Father in Heaven says to us. I'm not going to let you do this to yourself. Unload the thoughts of self-condemnation. Unload the notion that by doing better tomorrow, you can alleviate the guilt of yesterday. You can't. You know what you owe God today? You owe God a perfect life today. Good luck. Because what most people are thinking is this. Well, if I do better today, that'll make up for yesterday. Why? Because that's how it works in marriage. If I blow it yesterday, but I do good today, my wife is so forgiving that my good behavior actually merits her favor again. Because she doesn't demand from me righteousness. She's smarter than that. She never asked for that. Never asked for perfection. Never dreamed that it could happen. And it hasn't. I haven't disappointed her. But folks, God sits on the edge of your bed when you lay in bed at night and the thoughts haunt you. I'll do better tomorrow. This won't happen again. He said, well, and even if it does, there is no one that can bring an indictment against you which will sever you from the love of God. Because his plan in 28 through 30 is already done. And that will not produce a weakness in regards to fighting sin. It will produce a passion to fight sin because you understand that your status before God is secured through the work of the Savior. Who can bring a charge against those that God has chosen, justified and glorified? Paul's answer is, God justifies, therefore no one can. We need to talk to ourselves. We need to speak to ourselves the promises of God's word. We need to take Bible memory seriously and incorporate the sword of the Spirit into the heart of every believer within our church family so that when the doubts and accusations and thoughts of self-condemnation come, we can defeat them. But the truth of God's word, we need to sing songs that exalt the cross of Christ so that as you go through the week, that's what's on your mind when you wake up at three in the morning worrying about tomorrow, whether you're going to have the, the heart to pull it off. Sing the songs that exalt the cross. Speak something like this to yourself. Romans 8, 1, the beginning of this chapter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. That's why Paul's asking this question. Who can bring a charge against those that don't have any condemnation? The answer is no one. No one. Take the promise of Romans 8.1. Memorize it and say, Satan, when you haunt me with doubts and fears and, and, and conviction and condemnation from my past, my word for you, the sword of the Spirit for you is, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And that's the simple answer. Do I feel guilty? Yes. What do I say to it? I say, you know what? In the mind of God, in the heart of God, in the plan of God, by the grace of God, there's no condemnation. None. I know how we love to carry it. Self-pity is devastating. In the lives of believers, I urge you, take the sword of the Spirit and thrust it through this life from the evil one. Take the shield of faith and with it, Ephesians 6, 16 through 17, quench the fiery darts of the evil one, of the accuser who accuses us day and night. That's what Romans 12, 10 says. But in the plan of God, he's already been cast down. That's why Saddam Hussein's, forget the political aspects of all this, okay? It's why Saddam Hussein's saber rattling in the face of the world's greatest superpower was so stupid and really laughable. And so is Satan's. Because when he comes against you, he is coming against Christ himself. Who has already said, oh, I saw that guy. I saw him falling from heaven. I see his end. 
and he will be cast down. He will submit. And he will no longer bring a burden of condemnation to the children of God. Speak to yourself the words of a song like this. Though Satan should buffet and trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. The load of condemnation, gone. Why? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Folks, if you're living with a, guilt and, with a burden of guilt and self-condemnation, you're stupid. That's foolish. That's God ignoring. That belittles the cross of Christ. It's foolish. I understand that the fear is real. And I used to say this to my daughters. I know the fear that you're wrestling with is real. Now, does it make sense? And all I have is daughters. So this is all I know. Okay? Does this fear make sense? No. You know what? To me, honey, it's totally irrational but I know it's real to you. I know the fear of self-condemnation, the guilt that you're carrying in your life is real, and it is devastating your heart. I have been there, and I'm not telling you I'm totally free from it. Trying to cut the straps on the backpack so it doesn't stay on so easily. And the way you cut the straps from the burden of self-condemnation is to proclaim the truth of God's word, sing the truth of God's word, and let it set you free. Let it bring you to the place where you see how loved you are by God. Imagine this woman caught in adultery that the culture rejected because she was a sinner, caught in the very act of adultery, and because she was a woman, three strikes against her. Christ pursues her and loves her so that you can't justify your burden of self-condemnation. He doesn't find it humorous. He doesn't find it justifiable. And he looks at you and says, I know you're afraid of it, but I don't understand. In light of the cross, I don't understand. It is irrational. And you need to speak the truth of God's word back to that fear of self-condemnation. Last thought this morning, real quickly, verse 34. Text says this. And Paul's just like, he's just flinging it out there. I love this. Who is he that condemns? He's like, come on, come on. Step up. Tell me everything I did in my past is wrong. Paul's like, go ahead and say it. Paul, you persecuted the church of Christ, didn't you? Yep. You stood by where Stephen was murdered, Paul. Yeah, it did. I imagine Paul saying something like this. Hey, hang, hang on a second. Let me just, let me help you out. I'm the chiefest of sinners. I'm the worst of the worst. I'm the lowest of the low. If anybody has a right to bear a burden of self-condemnation from their past, it's me. Put something dead in their tracks. Who is he that condemns? Paul's response is glorious, and we'll deal more with this issue of the resurrection in a couple weeks. Verse 34, here's what he says. He says, Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised from the dead to life, is at the right hand of God, and is present tense, interceding, and what's the next two words? For us. Okay, I challenge you to do this. Go through your Bible with a pen. And circle the words for us in this text. And what you will realize is, in the Greek, it's called the dative of advantage. These are the blessings that have been accomplished and achieved for us. For us. For us. Over and over it comes up in the text. For who? 
for those that God foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. If you know Christ, you know what Paul is saying? He's saying, there is no one that can condemn you. Who can condemn us? Well, our hearts can condemn us, our critics can condemn us, our detractors, our enemies, our circumstances, thinking that all difficulty may be punishment from God. That's who can condemn us. What is an advocate? What does it mean in this text that Christ is at the right hand of the Father, interceding or advocating for us? It's legal terminology. It's the same word that we use to describe a lawyer in our culture who goes before the judge on your behalf. You sit at the table, charged, indicted, and in this case, clearly guilty. He runs interference for you. He goes to the Father for you. You sit there guilty in your shame and in your sin, and you know it. You know it's true. Christ gloriously advocates. An advocate is a person who pleads on behalf of another. How is it that Christ advocates for us? Paul says in this text, Christ died for me. And Christ was raised for me. 1 Peter 3.18 is one of my favorite verses that describes the gospel. Christ died for our sins, the just to the unjust, that he might bring us to God that he might advocate, bear away the guilt and shame, and bring us into the presence of our Father in heaven. This is the glorious work of Christ, who was not only crucified, died in this text, but was raised for me by the Father, who accepted his death as the only necessary payment for the guilt and shame in Tim Hoff's life. And folks, it is this, the resurrection of Christ that sets biblical Christianity apart from every other world religion. No other world religious leader has ever prophesied their own resurrection. None. And I believe this with all my heart. If biblical Christianity is true, it will be distinct from every other system. It will be distinct from every other religion. And it is in this regard. God became a perfect man and bore the price for your sin on a cross on a hill called Golgotha. He was taken off that cross, and he was in that allegedly, presumably defeated state, placed in a grave. And if the story ends there, biblical Christianity is no different than any other religion. But, on the third day, he rose again. And when he was raised, the Father was saying, to every believer, I accept the death of my son as the only necessary payment for your sin. You need not perform. You need only belief. You need only trust. Sever the straps on the backpack of condemnation with the truth that your Savior died for your sins. 1 Corinthians 15. He was buried. But he is alive. And in his status as alive, he ever lives and pleads for me. You know what I need? I need the pleading of Christ for me on a daily basis. Because on the day that I say, you know, the night I go to bed, I say, tomorrow will be different. I'm thinking, yeah, it'll be different. Just a different kind of sin. Different struggle. I'll get mad at one of my kids instead of at my wife. Daily. And Satan wants you to look at that and say, that's you. God looks at Christ and says, that's for you. 
that's for you. Now, folks, Hebrews 4.16 captures this. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, that is, post-resurrection, he goes through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest, an intercessor, an advocate, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he went through that temptation and all of those struggles without sin. And in that perfect body, hung on a cross to pay the price for our sin. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us then, in light of this, though we are condemned, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, which I would argue is daily. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sat down because the work is finished. You, in your good efforts, cannot add to what Christ has done, and you need not add to what He has done. It is completely done. And He, there, ever lives to make intercession for us. John Stott put it this way. Christ's intercession means that he continues to secure for his people the benefits of his death. That's what he's doing in his intercessory work. He is ever interceding, pleading that Father would apply the benefits of his death to my rebellion and to my sin. That is the glory of the gospel. The result is that all condemnations, all indictments, charges, and allegations fail, not because they are not true and accurate. Because they usually are. They fail because Christ is alive and is actively applying His blood to all of my sin. 1 John 1 and verse 9. To the whole universe, therefore, one has said, we can boldly say, who is he that condemns? Who is he that condemns? And there, this writer has said, will never be an answer for those that God has chosen. We can boldly say, who can condemn those that God has chosen? The answer from eternity, past, present, and future is silence. A deafening silence. Because the Savior indeed has spoken. In Job chapter 16, Job, as he is, Job was great. He had friends that helped him put the backpack on. Job is struck with a series of calamities that break his heart, take his family, steal his wealth. And he's just left with God and three friends that he would rather kill. You know what they do? They load condemnation on. Well, Job, typically when people go through things like that, it's because of their bad life. It's because God is taking what you deserve and just pouring it out of your life, Job. And that's obviously and clearly the only appropriate explanation for what you're going through. That's how we see it. In the midst of Job, chapter 16, a verse that's not usually thought of as a very popular verse from Job, but to me, it is the glorious and powerful sinner. Job replies to his friends, he says, I have heard many things like this. Miserable comforters are you all. And I'm just like, yes, Job. With your long-winded speeches, or will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? Well, I could speak like you. 
if you were in my place, I would make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. End of the chapter. O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now, in the midst of this assault from close friends who are loading condemnation on Job, even now, my witness is in heaven. Folks, think about this. This is the oldest book in the Old Testament in terms of chronology and writing. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Christ. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My, and I love this, my advocate, my intercessor is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. Folks, think about this. You know what Job saw? Job saw the threatening burden of condemnation being lashed to his back. And as he fights it off, he's not assuming that he's completely innocent. He's saying if in some way some of your accusations are correct, even though you're way over the top, if in fact some of it is correct, my advocate is on high. He is interceding for me before the Father as a friend pleads for his friend, for help to secure the benefits of his death to be applied to Job even prior to the coming of Christ because he is the lamb slain when? Before the foundation of the world in the mind and glorious plan of God. One of the greatest tragedies of justice in my lifetime is the story of O.J. Simpson. One of the greatest judicial tragedies of my lifetime. Probably the greatest at least the most well-known. He had a slick, highly paid, crafty team who obscured the truth, and in my judgment, his opinion, okay, this is not Bible, they set a guilty man free. By manipulating the system, remember the glove? Just act like you can't get it on your hand. I could do that with almost every glove on planet Earth. And by that, they manipulated the system and made a guilty man look like he was, in fact, innocent. And by the way, the leader of that team is already dead because his function as an advocate was temporary. Jesus, and I hope you understand this, Jesus for you is not a slick defense attorney who cheats justice. He will not and need not plead and declare my innocence but his righteousness he does not get me off the hook by using slick tactics because Christ in his death paid for my sin which rightly condemns me by becoming a curse for me he is in fact a sacrificial savior who brings and provides justice by his blood he needs no rhetorical devices he needs no fancy suits no nuanced speech and he ever lives to make intercession for guilty sinners. Do you understand the difference? He doesn't have to get you off the hook. He says guilty is charged. And I will bear the appropriate condemnation in their place on the cross for their sin. 
And it is for that reason that Paul can say, who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised from the dead, is at the right hand of God and is currently, present tense, interceding for us. Is it any wonder that when you get to verse 39, Paul says this, in all these things, we are more than, we are supra in the Greek, conquerors. Who do not need to live with the burden of self-condemnation. And you look at the cross, it is foolish to live with and to carry a burden of self-condemnation. It belittles God and it steals glory from his name. Hymn writer put it this way. He said, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. And when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within appropriately, Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free and God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. But folks, I hope when you sing words like that, when you say truth like that, it fills your heart with a deep passion and amazement that must find expression in words of praise to God and words of joy shared with one another and words of confrontation to a friend who is putting on the backpack of self-condemnation. Help them sever the straps that are holding them down. Folks, I, look, it mystifies me at times why Christians seem so unhappy. When you look at truth like this, who can condemn? Who can bring a charge that sticks? No one. None. The future is covered. We, by God's grace, have been set free. Remember, no sin is too great. There is no sin in the closet that will pop out on the day of judgment and take you down. Application. Do not withhold from others what God in Christ has so graciously and freely given you. The greatest offense that we can give to the cross is to harbor bitterness in our hearts and not to forgive those who have sinned against us. Rejoice in His glorious provision. Talk to yourself. Sing to yourself the promises of God. And may your heart be deeply encouraged and may the burden of self-condemnation be severed once and for all from the backs of believers so that we can walk without the burden full of joy and full of hope. Let's bow our heads this morning.